With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Thursday. Happy day before Friday. Great show planned for you today. Zeke Arkham, going to be a first-time visitor to uh, Fearless. Zeke is a law enforcement officer who has a popular podcast and a popular Twitter feed where he discusses a lot of the police involved or these Black Lives Matter issues from an interesting perspective. He and Delano Squires had a little uh, back and forth over Twitter about this Jordan Neely situation in New York, the homeless man who was choked and killed uh, after causing some disruption on a subway. We'll talk about that. Uh, David Tyree, the former NFL uh, star, the Super Bowl helmet catch guy, he will join the show. I need you right now to start pounding that like button. Pound it 5,000 times. We got to fight this algorithm. YouTube is trying to kill us. They've shadow banned us. They're undermining the views on the show. We got to fight back. I need you guys fighting back with me. If you're listening over Apple, five-star reviews right now. Do your part. Help the fearless army. Write a little review in there, but definitely hit that five-star review. Let's continue to fight the algorithm. All right, let's get into it. Let's get into our great show. Jordan Neely's dad abandoned him in childhood. Neely's stepfather strangled and disposed of his mother when Neely was just 14 years old. According to people who knew Neely, the murder of his mother and the abandonment of his father caused Jordan Neely to fall into depression and mental illness. His family support erased. In recent years, Neely became a schizophrenic homeless nuisance terrorizing the streets and subways of New York. Neely's life ended in inevitable tragedy Monday afternoon. He menaced the wrong group of New York subway riders. A former Marine wrestled Neely to the ground from behind, applied a chokehold to restrain him, and at least one other passenger helped subdue Neely. The 30-year-old vagrant lost consciousness and died. On Wednesday, the medical examiner's office ruled Neely's death a homicide, stating neck compression as the cause of death. Political opportunists in corporate and social media appear ready to turn Neely into the next George Floyd, a heroic martyr and symbol of American unfairness and an excuse to riot and loot. Say his name, Jordan Neely. According to social media pundits, the Marine and the black man who helped subdue Neely maimed and lynched innocent Jordan Neely, a Michael Jackson impersonator, a young man with a bright future, had white supremacy not reared its ugly head. After hours of careful, careful Twitter deliberation, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez posted her verdict, stating, quote, 
Jordan Neely was murdered. But because Jordan was houseless and crying for food in a time when the city is raising rents and stripping services to militarize itself while many in power demonize the poor, the murderer gets protected with passive headlines plus no charges. It's disgusting. AOC is a lawmaker sworn to uphold the Constitution and our agreed upon laws. She does not believe in our innocent until proven guilty standard of law. What she sees on Twitter is more than enough proof to prove murder. For the record, homicide and murder are two different things. There is justifiable and legal homicide. Murder can't be justified. Murder is always a crime. Homicide is not. We've murdered truth and nuance. Jordan Neely is not the second coming of Emmett Till. He's a victim of the widespread destruction of family. Not just his family, but the destruction of the American family. New York is a lawless hellhole captured by the demons created from the breakdown of family and the vilification of authority. Unparented children and adults control the Big Apple streets and subways. Neely's untreated mental illness made him a ticking time bomb in a city where law enforcement has retreated and chaos and disorder have escalated. Vigilante justice is a natural outgrowth when law enforcement retreats to safety. Untrained, frustrated citizens will make mistakes. Opportunists will capitalize on those mistakes. More than likely, the white Marine will be sacrificed so that politicians, corporate media, activists, clergy, and Neely's own family do not have to deal with their role in his tragic life and death. We all played a role in cultivating the toxic and anti-family culture that killed Jordan Neely. The people most passionately seeking to punish the Marine are the most guilty. AOC participated in the defund the police insanity. She helped loose the criminal lunacy torturing NYC. Black Lives Matter conspired with New York's Democratic politicians and prosecutors to prioritize the welfare of criminals above law-abiding citizens. The black church centered racial justice and government assistance over preservation and promotion of the family. Corporate media rewards and revels in racial controversy. Jordan Neely's father unleashed the first deadly strike to Jordan's soul when he abandoned his son. Neely's stepfather fired the fatal shot when he killed Neely's mother. Jordan Neely's been in a coma for 16 years. The white Marine pulled the plug. Had the former Marine been black, all the people feigning outrage would treat Jordan's death as a merciful abortion. No one would care. And I mean no one. Black gang members will kill men no different from Jordan Neely across America today. None of it will make national news. There will be no protest, no calls for justice. Most of the murders will go unsolved. No snitch culture will protect the killers. No one has truly cared about Jordan Neely since his mother died 16 years ago. No one cares today. 
People care about the color of the former Marine who choked Jordan Neely. Black life does not matter. White perpetrators of black death are what really matter. They're scarce and valuable. Political opportunists and social media clout chasers pounce on these situations regardless of the circumstance. It's political gold. Lawyers chase ambulances. Liberals chase coroners, hoping to find a dead black body killed by whites. They bribe the coroner investigating the death and hire a media mortician who can make the body look as angelic as possible. Al Sharpton performs the eulogy and Ben Crump passes the collection plate. The opportunists have no interest in a solution. Solutions would undermine their ability to profit from the death of black men killed by white men. Charging the white Marine with murder won't solve or improve anything. It will make the wannabe hero just another victim of America's broken family structure. Restoring the family is the only hope for America. I hate to sound this simplistic about an issue as complex as what's going on with Jordan Neely, but, but the solution is simple. Family. You destroy the family. This is the results you get. When you, when our whole culture turns into baby mama culture, and it's not just happening with black people, it's happening to all of American culture. We have no respect for the family. None. No respect for the natural family. None. Everything we're doing is about empowering people that weren't covered in God's marriage covenant. Everything we're doing is not about, it's, it's, the, it's the antithesis of being about the natural family. What God designed to develop a child, daddy and mama, we have destroyed that. We don't value it in this country. And so situations like what just happened to Jordan Neely will happen over and over and over and over again. Most of them don't make news because the perpetrator is black. The only time they make news is when a white person runs into our neglect. These unparented kids that we send off into the world and hope that they survive. And Jordan Neely beat the odds. He survived until 30. Mother murdered at 14, dad abandoning him in childhood. Jordan Neely probably should have been dead 10 years ago. People can get bogged down in this case and never discuss, talk about the root causes. People can get, oh man, if we just put this Marine in jail, things will be better. There will be a new Jordan Neely tonight. Tonight, there will be dozens of Jordan Neelys. Mentally ill, people that can't recover from their broken family structures and the trauma they experience as children. 
We don't have the resources to treat all of our mentally ill. And we don't have the family structures to wrap their arms around people who are mentally ill. And we don't have the resolve to fight against the root causes of a lot of this depression and mental illness. It's the breakdown of family. It's the sexual perversion that we keep promoting among young people. At some point, we have to discuss root causes and not get tricked and bogged down into always discussing or over and over again discussing the same thing. The same, that white supremacy had nothing to do with what happened to Jordan Neely. The media is going to focus on that, make it front and center, and make it the talking point. Everybody knows that's a lie. That's a distraction. Because they don't want you to talk about all the things that are being done systemically to destroy the family. And that destruction of family is at the root of every bit of chaos and disorder we have in America today. That's my fire starter. Going to talk about it with Zeke Arkham. We're going to talk about it with Delano Squires. And then we'll bring in David Tyree and have a different discussion about uh, an Alabama football star, Tony Mitchell, that got busted with a bunch of drugs. David Tyree, the per perfect person to talk about that with. It's going to be an awesome show. Before we bring on Zeke, I want to uh, take care of just a tiny bit of business. We got some big news and a special treat for you uh, tonight. Uh, the Blaze TV is going to war against the people trying to destroy comedy. Tonight, Blaze TV is embarking on a mission to save comedy and impact the culture. We're launching this mission tonight, May 4th, at 8 p.m. by releasing our first ever full-length comedy film. The movie is called Reopening, and it's a mockumentary that follows the cast and crew of a small community theater as they struggle to reopen during the heart of COVID-19's pandemic. It's a brilliant work of satire using humor to expose and ridicule the insanity that swept the nation during the pandemic. We knew our audience would absolutely love it, so we're thrilled to be delivering it to you tonight. Join us tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern for the premiere of Reopening. We'll be streaming a live pre-show on YouTube and Facebook with members of the cast, but the movie itself will be available exclusively on Blaze TV. So in order to join the fun, Head on over to blazetv.com slash reopening and use the code reopening to get a $20 off your subscription. That's blazetv.com slash reopening, promo code reopening for $20 off. All right, you can email me and us, fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. Zeke Arkham, next. It's my obligation to hate discrimination, raising up your hands for freedom. All right, welcome back. As promised, we're gonna bring in Zeke Arkham. Uh, he's a law enforcement officer. He also hosts a podcast. He's got a very interesting Twitter feed that I've been following for a while. His podcast is called Reasonable Suspicion. Uh, he's called the Notorious COP. Wanted his opinion on this Jordan Neely uh, situation because one, I saw Zeke and uh, Delano going back and forth over Twitter. Uh, I don't want to preempt Zeke's thoughts, but his one of his last tweets 
says, I see the left blaming everyone for Jordan Neely's death except Jordan Neely. I ride the trains daily. I've seen situations where homeless people with obvious mental health issues are threatening physical force against all passengers. No amount of de-escalation is going to uh, stop them. Anyway, without further ado, Zeke, uh, welcome to Fearless. Glad to have you. Your take, expound on your take uh, on Jordan Neely and, and why corporate media and social media are perhaps getting this wrong. Well, first, thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be here. But corporate media needs a victim. They need another George Floyd. They need someone that they can rally behind and go, oh, look at this. He's a victim of white supremacy, the infamous white supremacist boogeyman that's going around and destroying black lives and holding black folk back. If this Marine had been a black man, no one would have said anything. If, if Jordan Neely had been a white guy, subdued either by another white guy or a black man, no one would have said anything. But Jordan Neely is their perfect victim. They can use him. They can use his videos of him dancing on the trains to Michael Jackson. And they can say, hey, listen, here's this guy who just needed some help. As AOC said, you know, he's a victim of the system. He just needed a place to stay. And they can use him. They can prop him up. And they can say, this is our victim. We're going to champion his cause. We're going to make sure he's okay. We're going to make sure that his message is put out. And then they're going to get it wrong over and over again because they like to prop up the victim. It's classic Marxism. They're not going to say, you know, he was wrong for his actions. He shouldn't have been on the trains menacing people. He shouldn't have been on the trains trying to victimize people. They're not going to say that because it destroys their message. What they're going to say is that this man who stopped him, who, who choked him out, they're going to say, oh, you know, he's a white guy. This is obvious white supremacy. This is obviously someone who woke up that day and decided to choose violence. They're, they're not going to go against Neely because that disrupts their base. AOC, the squad, that disrupts their base. So they're going to get it wrong time and time again. The thing that is so true that no one can deny, if a crip or a blood has shot this dude in the back of the head, absolutely no one would care. No one. If, if Jordan Neely, who died at 30, if a cripple, a stray bullet from a gang member had killed him at seven, no one would care. There would be no protest. There would be no outrage. And, and if he were killed in the inner city and the crime was never solved, like the overwhelming majority of murders are, are, are not solved, no one would care. This, this whole Black Lives Matter deal is really about white perpetrators matter. Jordan Neely is just a prop and an excuse to go after some white dude. It, 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 no one cares about his life. That's so blatantly obvious, I, I don't know how anybody can deny that. Well, I, I've always said BLM should change their name to SBLM, Some Black Lives Matter because they're not gonna go after the black lives that have been destroyed by violence in Chicago, in Baltimore, in St. Louis. They're not gonna go after those black lives. They're not gonna look for accountability for DAs who think you can solve crime with hugs and warm fuzzies. They're not gonna hold uh, uh, DAs and, and other politicians accountable 
who think you can just sort of win the hearts and minds, as Obama said, of gang members who are out there directly terrorizing neighborhoods. They're not going to go after those people. They're going to go after the white supremacy boogeyman. They're going to convince black folk that they're so oppressed by white supremacy, by rich people, by billionaires. That, that's who their enemies are. As far as the people getting shot every day, every weekend in black Democrat-run cities, they couldn't care less about those lives. Those lives don't advance their narratives. They pick and choose which lives matter to them so that they can advance their narratives and ultimately stay in power. If you keep people scared and if you keep people fearful for their lives and you say, well, I'm the solution to this because I'm going to promote de-escalation and I'm going to promote defunding the police and I'm going to put those resources that we should be using for police in, into social workers and violence re reducers or reduction experts or whatever they call themselves nowadays, we're going to put funds in, into that and we're all going to live in harmony and we're all going to dance around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. They offer themselves as that sort of solution to the problem instead of just going forward and definitively doing something about it. Bill de Blasio gave his wife over a billion dollars to correct this problem. A billion dollars that no one knows where it went. There are no receipts for it. There's no accountability for it. But Bill de Blasio gave his wife uh, over a billion dollars to supposedly fix this problem of mental health and mental issues. And no one's, no one's been able to benefit from it. So my question is, at what point do people stop voting for these soft on crime politicians and wake up and realize something has to be done? And it might not be the prettiest solution, but it's a bona fide, definite solution. So you and Delano went back and forth a bit on Twitter because Delano is complaining that the, the former Marine, the white guy that choked him, took him down took Jordan Neely down from behind. You pushed back and, you know, said, hey, look, Delano's saying he should have confronted the man facing him, not from behind. I, 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 anyway, your rebuttal to that. I've, I've squared off against some of these people, some of these emotionally disturbed people plenty of times in my line of work. And sometimes the way you de-escalate them is to come from behind them and grab them. Not everyone can be reasoned with. Not everyone can just be talked down or intimidated or made to back down. Sometimes the best solution is to just grab them from behind and pin them so that they can be restrained. You know, from all uh, accounts, I've read that, that this guy, Jordan Neely, was on the train menacing people, making people fear for their safety, making people fear for their lives walking up and down the train. We've seen plenty of footage from New York City trains where other emotionally disturbed people are menacing riders. You have a right in New York City to travel safely on the trains, on the subways. And if someone is infringing on that right by making you feel threatened, by making you feel credibly threatened, I'm not talking about some guy on the other side of the train screaming and ranting and he's not coming anywhere near you. I'm talking about someone that's in your face or, you know, about to lay hands on you, in some cases laying hands on you. You have a right to defend yourself. You have a right to neutralize that threat. I'm not talking about necessarily killing people every single time, but you have a right to feel safe and you have a right to travel safely. And my disagreement with Delano, even though I have all the respect in the world for him, is that you can't, sometimes you can't just face this person head on because you're asking 
for more problems. They're going to keep escalating it, and there's nothing you can do to calm them down. So if you can grab someone from behind and neutralize the situation and minimize people getting hurt, I'm all for it. The other thing, Zeke, for me is, look, the real culprit here is the defund the police movement and the disrespect for law enforcement. And law enforcement has retreated and left ordinary citizens on their own to protect themselves. If, if law enforcement hasn't re- retreated so far, they would be there to deal more swiftly with someone like Jordan Neely. The homelessness problem in New York is massive. The mental illness problem, the unparented child problem, and, and just the lawlessness that's run rampant in New York, and, and the unparented kids are basically, and young adults are running New York. And so when I look at the defunding of police and police retreating and backing up, and then I look at, at Jordan Neely's background, abandoned by his father, his mother is murdered when he's just 14, and his mother is just 36. And, and so it's hard for me to leap over all these other factors that contributed to his mental illness, contributed to his schizophrenia and his behavior. Father abandoned him, mother murdered by her, her husband and his stepfather, uh, the defunding of police. It's hard for me, I damn near, and this will irritate people, but I already said it once, I look at uh, the former Marine and the uh, the black man who assisted in subduing Jordan. These guys are victims of of a society that's unpoliced and 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 young people that are unparented. That that, that you're going if if everything goes to uh, unparented and in chaos and all of that. Eventually, vigilante justice is going to overtake and st- and take the place of law enforcement. You've got police out there that are scared to do their jobs because they're afraid of getting jammed up by some politician. They're afraid of being on YouTube, being you know the next police officer who is doing his job, doing nothing wrong, but happened to use force against a criminal or, God forbid, use deadly physical force against a criminal. So you've got cops who are scared to do their jobs. This is in New York City. This is in Chicago. This is all across the country. I talk to different people from law enforcement every day, and they all have the same concerns. I'm scared to go out there and do my job. And this came from defund the police. This came from the squad, AOC and her squad, demonizing cops every day. This came from the previous administration in New York City, who was very pro-criminal. They, they treated criminals as a protected class, and they made law after law condemning cops, but no law condemning criminals. So you've got cops who are afraid to do their jobs. This is a natural progression. Because people are going to start saying, I can't depend on the law to protect me, which is their job. I can't pretend, I can't depend on the law to protect me. So if someone is in my face threatening to hurt me, if someone is in my face and they're causing me to fear for my life and safety or the life and safety of my family, I'm going to do what I have to do in order to survive, in order to get safely from point A to point B. So if these elected officials want to stop this kind of thing, or or even just the people, because the elected officials work for the people. 
once the people get tired of having to do this, they're going to have to vote differently, which I've always advocated for. Vote differently. Diversify your vote. You don't have to vote for the same people over and over again. If AOC isn't doing anything to help your life and help your agenda, whatever it might be, or just help you be able to move from point A to point B safely, vote her out. But when people start getting tired of this and start electing different politicians and start deciding that you have to be tough on crime and you have to address the problems that are going on instead of just putting a Band-Aid on it, then things are going to change. Until then, unfortunately, this might happen more. Zeke, thank you for taking the time. We'd love to have you back on the show. Love what you're doing over social media. Great job on the show. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. All right, uh, that's Zeke Arkham. Find his uh, Twitter, find his podcast. Uh, find, he, he can be found on Twitter at, at Zeke, Z-E-E, Z-E-E-K, Arkham, A-R-K-H-A-M. Uh, find his podcast, The Notorious C-O-P, as well. Good brother. Thanks for, uh, awesome to have you more. We'll hear from Delano. Uh, we'll let him respond to what Zeke had to say and see where Delano stands on this entire issue in a moment. Uh, I want to tell you guys before we get out of here, before we get to Delano, uh, you can get your Roll Call merchandise. You ask for it, we're going to give it to you. Backed by popular demand, Roll Call merch is now live in the Fearless Army shop, including hoodies, T-shirts, and dog tags. Quantities are highly limited, so head on over to shopblazemedia.com fearless to get your merch today. Delano Squires, next. All right, welcome back. Uh, time for some Delano Squires. The smartest man on the show is being challenged today by Zeke Arkham. And maybe a little bit by me. I'm not sure where uh, Delano actually comes down on the Jordan Neely deal. We'll find out here in a second. Delano, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, where do you come down on the Jordan Neely deal? Uh, I, I, I won't, I'll, I'll stop there. Where do you come down on this? Yeah, Jason. So, um, and first let me say, I got a tremendous amount of respect for Zeke. And, and the work that he does as a as a officer of the law um, in New York City. So uh, let me first say that. But I, where I come down on this particular issue is I, I start by getting out my scalpel because I think what we need to do is separate the conjoined triplets of the facts of this case, the larger sort of issue of lawlessness in big cities, particularly New York City and New York City subways, and the broader political, you know, issues around anti-cop sentiment, um, because as long as we're having that conversation and the tw- and the triplets are conjoined, it's always going to be pulled in the direction of well, we understand because all these other these bigger issues are at play. But when it comes to this specific incident, what everything that I've seen has indicated that this uh, Jordan Neely was homeless. He he was not. You know, he was mentally ill in one de- to one degree or the other. Um, he was loud, aggressive, let's say belligerent on on the train. 
And I grew up in New York City. I took trains everywhere, all across the city. I'm very familiar with what that looks like and what that feels like. And that the young man who I, to this point, I still don't think has been named, by the way, um, came behind him and put him in a in a, a chokehold, a rear naked choke, as I've heard some people describe it, and held him for 15 minutes and, and nearly obviously tragically passed away. Um, that seems like something that warrants charges. And I say this to someone who is, anybody who follows me know I'm completely against lawlessness. I believe, actually believe law and order is a pro-life issue and a social justice issue. But you have to judge a case on, on its merits and the facts presented in that particular case. And, and one of the foundational principles of justice is to literally face your accuser. And if, and if the Marine had confronted him and said, hey man, chill out, right? Come, come on, we don't need all of that. Um, and, he, and he stood face to face and then Jordan Neely got aggressive towards him and took a step towards him and the Marine defended himself or they got into a conflict and in the midst of that conflict, he got the upper hand and, and he put him in a chokehold, then we would be having a different conversation. But if you sneak up behind a man and you put him in a chokehold and, and then say, oh, we needed two other people to, res- to, to restrain him, what do you think is gonna happen if you put somebody in a chokehold? Do you think they're just gonna lay there and play dead? He, he's gonna flail, he's gonna wanna get you off of him. I don't even know if he knew who, 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 um, who was choking him, I, I, I have no idea. So I don't, I understand the impulse to step in. And I, and I said this, I tweeted this a couple years back. The people in New York City particularly who were aiding and abetting lawlessness were sowing seeds that they didn't understand and didn't, they didn't understand what they were going to reap. Um, and when you sow lawlessness, you reap disorder. And when you have enough disorder, what you get is vigilantism. And the, part, and the job of the civil magistrate is to keep both of those things at bay. Is, is to keep lawlessness at bay, to have a peaceful and orderly society so that you do not create an opportunity for vigilantism to rise. And I predicted that we would have a Bernard Getz style incident, particularly on the subway, because this is you know, one of the laws of nature. People are only gonna put up with so much, but for so long. And if this situation was one in which the Marine was coming to the defense of a woman um, who was being you know, abused and brutalized like Elizabeth Gomes a couple years back, viciously attacked in, in a Queens subway station, that would be something different. But the reason that the papers are saying menacing and aggressive and using those type of descriptive words is because they can't say struck someone, attack someone. They can't say that. Um, and if that's the case and all he and the worst that he did was be a person, a mentally ill homeless person who was being loud on a train, I don't think conservatives want to go down the road of saying, yes, that's justification to take the man's life. Because that has implications that most of us are not ready to deal with. So <clears throat> you took out a doctor's scalpel. I'm gonna take out, I'm gonna put my journalism hat on. Okay. And 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 just having <laughs> been a journalist and like a a did you watch the, everybody watched the TV show The Wire, you're somewhat familiar with it. I'm, I'm, familiar I'm, I'm with most it. related yeah. to, yeah, I'm most related to these two detectives, Jimmy McNulty and Bunk Moreland. And, and, and so a, a crime would look one way and McNulty and Bunk would show up and they'd start putting the pieces together and, and the pieces may look completely different than how the thing looked initially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, 
The one thing I'm to, just as a journalist and having seen, there's not enough information out there at the moment to know if charges are warranted or if they're, if they're not. It, there's just not enough information. I can't go off of one guy's account. One, there's some photographer or Latino guy that's being quoted everywhere who said, oh, this went on for 15 minutes. I'm suspicious of that. People mm -hmm. lose concept of time. Three minutes of watching someone struggle can feel like 15 minutes, and when you're talking to a reporter, you just, well, yeah, see my 15 minutes. That's not a court of law, that's not after thought, that there's not five other witnesses that we've heard from that might say, nah, it was seven minutes, nah, it was two minutes. And so there's, I, I at this moment, throw out that guy's account, and then I look at some of the pictures afterwards of people standing around, the Marine, the other guy that helps to do him, and maybe a couple other people. None of the, that, and it's just one picture, but, but none of that looked like uh, this was something that happened after 15 minutes. So I, I just want to hear more, and I, I want to know why the police initially released him. We're talking mm -hmm. about New York, because they have released this guy. We're talking about New York, where they took that uh, bodega guy, Yep. that shot a black dude, they immediately took him to Rikers Island. They got, Stabbed this is a white mm -hmm. dude. The political winds are blowing and, and everybody knows which direction those winds are blowing. Locking up some white guy, there's no risk to that. And so if the police, if the prosecutor had, had heard something from this guy and perhaps the more broader perspective they heard, I don't think they would be reluctant to let's lock this uh, Marine up and then mm -hmm. wait for some more additional facts. And so right now I'm just suspicious of all stories uh, because th one person's perspective isn't going to tell this story and, and the reason why perhaps we haven't heard, because you, you say the guy should have confronted him and challenged him uh, directly. Perhaps he had watched one or two other people do that. And the guy flailing his arms and yelling and getting belligerent or whatever. Maybe he never struck anybody, but he may have seen a couple of other people directly engage the guy. And, and something, I think, probably prov provoked this guy to, hey, let's bring him down. Let's get this situation subdued. And then I I'm if this had gone on for 15 minutes, and this other dude, the black dude, is helping to subdue this guy for 15 minutes. And no one is saying, hey man, uh, let go of the chokehold or try to get him 15 minutes. That's a long time. Uh, you know, 15 minutes. So I, I just throw that out and tend mm -hmm. to think this was probably some three or four minute engagement. This is. I don't think the guys, certainly there was no premeditated intent. There was no intent to harm somebody. You're dealing with a schizophrenic. And, and then the, the other thing I, I throw into this is like my mother, this is one of my mother's sayings, that mm -hmm. uh, you know, dogs that chase cars eventually get hit. And schizophrenics that get on 
subway trains and menace. And this, this guy was arrested, I think, 44 times and had maybe a warrant out at the time. He has assaulted other people and been charged with that. That's part of his history. In a city like New York, where law enforcement has retreated and lawlessness has become more commonplace, if you're going to continuously menace people, eventually you're just going to run into the wrong situation. And it's like me and speeding and why, I've, you know, I've, I've tried to really stop speeding because I've been a chronic speeder. Eventually, mm -hmm. a chronic speeder ends up in a car accident that costs mm -hmm. him his health, safety. And, and you just can't keep outrunning that forever. Henry Ruggs. And so yeah. when I put it all together, his dad abandoned him. His stepfather killed his mother when he was just 14. The depression, the schizophrenia, I, I get why this guy is nuts. And the whole, the, our family structure has been so tattered. Families don't wrap their arms around their mentally ill relatives like they used to. This guy's family's been destroyed. His mother's been killed and his father mm -hmm. abandoned him. And, and mm -hmm. so, so it, 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 very sad to say, but in a whole society where the family structures broke down, this guy's life was going to end tragically. He's got untreated mental illness, a disastrous, uh, you know, personal life with his mom and dad. And he's running around the streets of New York, menacing people and repeatedly getting arrested. There's no law enforcement to deal with him quickly. And some citizen tried to deal with him and it escalated and got out of hand. I, I want to hear far more, particularly AOC's done said it's murder. You mm -hmm. know, Anya Presley or whatever is calling it a lynching. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the byproduct of a decaying society and a decaying family structure. And, and there's a lot of victims here, perhaps including the two men or three men that tried to restrain this guy uh, when when. When everything falls down around you, uh, bad things are going to happen. And that's that's not justifying what happened to this young man. But he was chasing cars for a long time and and a car yeah. hit him. I, I, and, and, and I take all those points and I, and I think they're more than fair. So let me let me take a step back because I, I tend I want to live by the principles that I believe in. Right. Um, I want the f more facts to come out. And, and let the people who are sort of tasked with with adjudicating these issues decide whether or not it rises to a criminal offense. Right. So I think everyone should should caveat their their sort of comments with based on what we know now, with the, the facts that are in evidence now, I believe X, Y and Z. Right. So I, I talked about being a surgeon. You talked about being a journalist. My problem is most of us. Right. Sometimes myself included. Act as if we're soothsayers, because what ends up happening is um, a, a detective will take facts and he'll put put it together to. But the facts have to have to to fit together to solve the puzzle. But you can't take up one puzzle piece and say from this, I infer X, Y and Z. And you certainly can't take something that's happened and then take a guy's criminal record, which obviously no one knew at the time, and then say, the narrative that I create around that 
feeds into what I believe was the appropriate course of action at the time that these events were taking place. And I'm not saying this to armchair quarterback. I'm saying this because as a principle, we should want to set a high bar for what constitutes the type of conduct that warrants lethal force. Because if we don't, we're gonna live in a very, very different society. And here's what that society will look like. Somebody goes out, they're at a political rally, they're being menaced, they're center left, they're being menaced by, by some guy clad in MAGA gear, and he's saying, I'll, I'll F you up, I'll punch you in the face, and one of their comrades slides in behind them and put, puts them in a choke. And then, you, and then when things come out, when, when more evidence comes out, the person's background comes out, you find out that the MAGA guy, you know, assaulted his wife, he had a DWI, he had a gun charge, so on and so on and so forth. And then everybody's gonna have to, to, to apply the equal weights and measures. And I'll, and I'll tell you the one situation that made this clear as day to me, and I, and I think you and I come down on different sides of this. In the same way I saw the left excuse rioting and lawless behavior for all of summer 2020. I saw the right say, look, we need to back the cops. We need law and order. We should not allow our institutions to fall victim to, to, to protesters and activists until January 6th. And then the, 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 the record stopped playing, the DJs had switched, and now the people on the left say, oh, we love the police. Oh, they're honorable, they're doing their job. And now all the people on the right who wouldn't have said a mumbling word if some Antifa guy or some BLM guy got shot trying to climb through the window of a police precinct. Now I say, oh my gosh, Ashley Babbitt was an innocent victim. How, how did this happen? So what I'm saying is all of us, if we want to really be principled, you don't know your principle until you stress test your principles and they have to apply to foe and friend alike. And, and I'll tell you the one person who I think and this connects two things, and I, and I just thought about this as on the way over. That text that was leaked, that the New York Times reported on from Tucker Carlson, where you know it was a fairly long stream of thought, and, and the, the gist of it was, I found Tucker, I'm saying I as Tucker, I found myself wanting to see this Antifa guy get his, you know, his brains beat in. I, I hope the mob, and I had hoped the mob that attacked him would actually kill this guy. And then I heard something inside of me that said, no, you can't go there because someone loves this person. And if I find myself gloating over the death or, or harm or destruction of a person, that should make me check myself, right? Because I don't wanna become what he is. Th that was deeply insightful commentary from Tucker Carlson. Commentary that was not public, by the way. This was a private message. And of course, our uh, lamestream, um, low IQ, low vibrational media they took one piece out of that. That's not how white men fight. And they latched onto that. And then the conservative media, media did a counter latch to say, oh, well, if you think he's inferring that's how some people of color fight, well, let me show you all these videos where what he's saying is proven true. And we missed the entire context of what he was saying. And part, part of what I'm saying in terms of the reaction to this Jordan Neely incident is, if you're a person that finds yourself frothing in glee that one of those guys finally got what was coming to him, you should take a step back and ask yourself, what is it in me that thinks that regardless of how this went down, that the, the response, the only response to a belligerent homeless guy is for somebody to choke him 
for long enough, whether it's three minutes, four, four minutes, 15 minutes, for the man to die. And then for my public response to be, you know, uh, I guess he had it, you know, this is, what do you want? What do you, what, what, do you want the Marine to wait until he attacks somebody? No, I'm not saying that. But Jason, you and I have lived in enough cities where we've come enough, come across enough uh, uh, mentally disturbed homeless people. And, and I've only ever lived in cities. And I can only think of one time where someone physically confronted me. I've seen situations where a homeless guy would be ranting and raving, and then the police officer come by and he, he quiet himself down. Now, I'm not saying he was acting, but I'm saying um, most of these guys are not completely unhinged. And if you uh, respond to him face to face, I'm not saying to fight. But you can say, hey, hey man, you know, chill out, chill out. Come on, let's not do this. And then you have an opportunity to see where that goes. But if you if your first move is to come behind him, of course, the man is going to flail because he's feeling the, the air being choked out of his body. So so what I'm saying is, I think let's play detective. Let's not play Miss Cleo. That that's that's the, the gist of my message. There's a couple of things you said that uh, you unpacked a lot. I, I, and so some of this I can't go into detail, but. There is no tiny woman, there's no woman, really, that I would ever see shot in the fashion that Ashley Babbitt was shot, regardless of her politics, that I would be okay with, or that I would even feel good about. And, and I think a lot of people feel that way. Uh, the other thing is, you, you, lethal force is a term mm-hmm. that you use that I don't, I, if the Marine were here, he'd say, I wasn't remotely th- thinking this was lethal force. That that was not my intent. I didn't pull a gun on him. I didn't even pull a taser. I didn't pull a knife. I'm just trying to subdue the dude with a chokehold. And and the other thing that I suspect is, look, <clears throat> if someone puts a chokehold on me versus you, the ramifications mm-hmm. are going to be different. Big fat Whitlock, double cheeseburger eating Whitlock. <laughs> It might not take as long to choke him out as it would Delano. Homeless man who hasn't eaten, isn't properly hydrated. Again, that's why this whole 15 minute deal, Mm -hmm. I've I've been in enough fights, even back when I was in much better shape. After two or three minutes, most people are gassed unbelievably. Mm -hmm. Get, mm-hmm. get in a boxing ring. And so a guy, a homeless guy that's not eating, flailing around for 15 minutes, getting choked out, it just doesn't add up to me. And it makes me think he, given his malnutrition, perhaps drug use, whatever, that he's going to go and be in jeopardy a lot sooner than perhaps even I would. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so... I go back in your analogy about <clears throat> what uh, you've seen on subways and seeing people menacing people. And I used to spend a lot of time in New York and would, you know, see the crazy people that walk the street and all that. The one thing you did say, and then when a cop would walk by, they'd calm down. The, mm-hmm. the, the narrative right now is whether it's factual or true is like the cops just ain't walking around like they used to. Not nearly yeah. as much, not nearly as often. People are being inundated through social media, you know, over the last 10 years with constant videos showing 
like random crazy people being very violent and very aggressive and harming people. And so that's in their head and now there ain't no police around. If I don't subdue this guy, this thing could spin out of control. Someone could get hurt. This is all speculation, but, but I wanna see far more evidence and testimony before I'm quick to assume that they choked this guy out over a 15 minute period and mm -hmm. that the guy did absolutely nothing and just someone jumped out from behind him and pulled him down. I, I tend to think there's more to that. That's I think why the police have initially allowed the man to go home. They, they have time to investigate this. Yeah. But, but I, I just think that th there's a lot more to this story before Anya Presley starts saying he was lynched and, and uh, AOC says he was murdered and let's run out in the streets and riot. The one thing I think we can firmly say based on the testimony I believe of his aunt and his personal narrative, father abandoned, mother mm. murdered, he mm. turned depressed, he's schizophrenic, it's like, and, and this city has forced the cops to retreat. What I'm saying, Red, I'm not quick to blame the Marine or to blame Jordan Neely. I'm quick to blame a society that doesn't value family and a, and a, a, a culture that's turned so lawless that, that guys like this are just set out in the streets despite being arrested 44 times. No one's helping them. And this type yeah. of stuff is inevitable and it's going to happen in other cities and happen in New York again, unless we put the family back together and, and, and put reinforce or support law enforcement to actually do their job. And, and th your last point, I, I agree with you completely, right? As I said, the, the, the city feels more lawless than, than at recent times. Now, I wasn't alive in the 70s, but I certainly the picture that people pointed, you know, painted, of New York City in the 70s, it was just, you know, it was a concrete jungle. And and it's, it's ironic because of the previous guests, but a lot of these guys, New York is turning into Gotham, right? As it's been nicknamed. And there are a lot of people who believe, who belong in Arkham Asylum, who are, are out on the streets. And, so, and some of them are menacing. And sometimes it does move beyond words. As I said, there's, there's, there's a woman who lost her eye in a vicious attack. Um, at the hands of a guy who killed his grandmother when he was 14, right? There's a woman who had human feces uh, thrown on her on the subway. There've been multiple people who've been pushed on the tracks. So I, I, I get the impulse to say, not today, not on my watch. But what I'm saying is this particular case has to be judged on, on its merits. And, and there's a lot of space between do nothing and come up behind the guy and put him in a chokehold for X number of minutes. There's a ton of space, especially when you have the numerical advantage. But but again, I, I, I wanna, cause I, I do wanna press this home because the 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 J6 stuff and in relation to the BLM riots, um, that, that was an instructive moment for me. Because as I said, it was almost a hundred percent switch. And what I'm saying is I don't use the language of this person deserved to die. I'm cool with it. I celebrate. I don't use that language. I use the language of a person engages in certain types of behavior 
And they should know, or should at least think, that there are certain consequences that come with this. So if you, like the case in D.C. a couple months back, 14-year-old kid, he's out, he's, he's uh, looking to steal cars, he, go, he goes into a neighborhood, a homeowner comes out with a firearm and ends up shooting and killing the kid. Is it tragic? Of course it is. But the first question I asked myself is, what is a 14-year-old doing at four in the morning stealing cars? Now, ultimately, the man was charged. At first, they thought he was white. So that really made the, the, the situation spin up in local and international news. But he ended up being a 42-year-old black guy who works for the city and works with youth who probably got tired of hearing all of the, the inc- inc- incidents and instances of people either getting carjacked or having their car stolen. And he came out with a gun. Jason, let me tell you a real quick personal anecdote. Someone um, took items out of my own vehicle, right? When it was parked in our driveway. And when I told my friends on WhatsApp, one of them said, well, I'm glad you ain't go out there with a gun because, you, you know, and he was sort of joking. But and these, these are guys who live in New York now. They, they live in Brooklyn. They, they, they understand what's going on. I got the point he meant, which is, look, you go out there with a gun. You don't know how you're going to feel. You, you don't you, you may assess threats differently. And the fact that you have the weapon, if a person makes a, a move towards you, you may use it. And another one of my friends was like, I'm, I'm glad he didn't. And, and I only bring that up to say, I, I get the impulse towards protection, defense. I get people who get frustrated by having their car stolen for the third or fourth time. I get people who are frustrated hearing all the carjackings in a particular city. But what I'm saying is we have a system of laws in this country. And, and the, we have a system of laws. We don't have a criminal justice system, right? We really, what most of us want is a vengeance system that we can apply based on whether the perpetrator or victim is a part of our tribe. And sometimes that tribe is racial, sometimes that tribe is political. And as I said, I don't see any circumstance in which conservatives would be taking the side of a BLM or Antifa uh, protester who got the best of a belligerent, aggressive, drunk, whatever, uh, uh, MAGA Chad. That's not happening. Because if that happened, if that incident happened, like the one I described earlier, then it would be, oh, the guy has a right to his speech. He, yes, he was belligerent, he was aggressive, but he hadn't touched anyone. Um, you know, they look into the, to the, to the background of the person who, who applied the choke. Because we, we're all tribal in nature. And what I'm saying, and I, and I think you would agree with this, yes, families are part of how we recover this, but so is faith. And so is a biblical understanding of justice which must be impartial, not showing favoritism to the rich or the poor, the black or the white, the, the, the conservative or the progressive. And it has to be proportional. So if you say, um, I, I, uh, real quick, I, I sent Hadley a tweet of Torre, right? The, the low IQ social commentator from MSNBC in the Grio. And somebody had, they juxtaposed, they, they had hit Torrey talking today about this incident, Jordan Needley, and then they had a tweet underneath where he said, yeah, this, this old white man said the N-word to a black guy, the black guy says, say it again, the white man did, the black guy smacked him, the white guy died, oh well, 
F around and find out. That, that's what lies in the heart of most of us. So what I'm saying is, I think we should, we should as a society, want to tamp down that uh, uh, primal inclination towards vengeance. Because if not, then it really will be a survival of the fittest game, and, and you can't hold a society together like that. I, I get, understand all that. I'm just, I guess I'm just not as interested in the individual cases because the individual cases are going to continue if the root causes aren't addressed. And so the entire time, probably starting in 2014 with Trayvon Martin and just on through Ferguson and all this stuff, I was sitting there in real time telling any of my friends like, oh, y'all, y'all just think this rioting and people are gonna sit up and watch this year after year, month after month, and there's never going to be the flip side of that. Mm-hmm. And, and there's never, and, 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 and not that I even think, cause I don't, the January 6th was the flip side of that. Because again, I didn't see no buildings getting burned down. I didn't, it was bad, I get it, it was bad behavior, blah, blah, blah. But to me, it was like, what did y'all think was gonna happen? We just looked at seven straight years of the media justifying every BLM and and Antifa riot and looting. Of course this is what's gonna happen. And I look at Jordan Neely's life, this tragic life, and his pattern of behavior, I'm like, "What, what did we think? How did we think this was going to end? With him accepting a Nobel Peace Prize? He, he's a menace, he's assaulting people, he's bickering with people, he's got untreated mental illness, and he has no family. This is how it's going to end. Unless we correct the root issues in family, faith, mm-hmm. this is what's gonna happen to all these cities where there are unparented young people and unparented adults running rampant and wow, the, the Bible, I think, I don't have the scriptures to back it up, but I've read enough uh, Tony Evans and uh, <laughs> I can't quote the scriptures off the top of my head, but the ramifications of this kind of family breakdown, that's all we're looking at. And, and yeah. dads that abandon their kids, uh, mothers that use their kids as tools and, and people that just have babies indiscriminately and never get married and never really fully commit to those kids and develop them. This is what it produces, this type of chaos. And so I look at the Marine and the, the guy that subdue, subdued him that will probably get dragged into this. And I look at Jordan Neely and, and I said, this is the byproduct of our parentless, familyless, destroyed, natural order family. This is the curses that come along with that. And until we address that, we'll just go from this Marine to the next guy and, and, and we'll continue to ignore. Again, if this guy had been shot in the back of the head by the Crips and Bloods, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. No one would right, care. Everybody, well, I mean, Jordan, Crips and the Bloods got him. I can't yeah. talk about that. That would be snitching. And, and so I just, it's hard for me to get bogged down in the individual cases when we have a societal 
corrosion that puts us all in jeopardy. Because as a man, what mm -hmm. I've trained myself to do, when I see foolishness, insanity, I just get up and start walking mm -hmm. the other direction. <laughs> I feel you. I'm not getting involved in any of that. And so th that's, I can't, I don't think that's the appropriate response. But we have a society that, that has made that potentially the only response is from, and, and that's why women and young people and kids are in such jeopardy and old people are in such jeopardy because everybody's yeah, been yeah. trained to, to, to run away. And, and you know, I, I, Delana, I got to go, but I appreciate ah. it. Great job. I got I to gotta get to David Tyree. Uh, okay. Thank you, Delano. Uh, make sure you guys are slamming that like button. Make sure you're on Apple and anywhere else giving me that five-star review. Hey, this out, I'm just gonna keep it real with you. The algorithm is killing us. YouTube is out to get us, uh, and, and I need your help. So, anywho, uh, David Tyree, next. Welcome back. As promised, uh, we're going to be joined by David Tyree. You guys remember him from the Super Bowl catch, the helmet catch, the New York Giants upset of the undefeated New England Patriots. David was on the show a few weeks ago. And one of the things I thought was like, man, there's more to David's story that we need to un unpack. Uh, because we were talking about an email or a DM I got over uh, Instagram, and then at the back end of the conversation, we talked a little bit about uh, David's narrative and story, and he shared with us something that I had forgotten, that after his rookie season, he had gotten busted in a drug sting or pulled over with a bunch of illegal drugs, and it nearly ruined his NFL career. And then last week, or in the past 10 days, I believe an Alabama five-star uh, football player, Tony Mitchell, just a freshman at Alabama, he got busted uh, with marijuana and guns and was trying to evade police going 144 miles per hour. And, and I thought there was an interesting opportunity to bring David on and talk about what happens in the mind of a young athlete has a bright future ahead of him and he gets a little money and decides that's not enough. I got to take these extra risks. And it, it's one thing I've always wanted to have someone to talk about, about how you could be in the NFL, a rookie, second year player making six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars a year, eight hundred, maybe even two million. Who knows? but feel like a peasant in a locker room when there are other guys in that locker room making 10, 15, $20 million a year. And it will make you do things that you regret or stupid, that are stupid, trying to keep up with the Joneses, trying to live that NFL life. And I now see this playing out in college football because of name, image, and likeness and the money that's being funneled towards these players. And how will they use that money? Will they use that money to make sure they have a great college experience? Will they use that money to help their family back at home? Or will they use that money 
and say, you know what, this isn't enough. I want to be a big baller. I want to live like a rapper. I want to live like the dope dealers in my neighborhood I came up from. And so I want to play this video of Tony Mitchell getting pulled over and busted with drugs. And, and it's, we're just going to play excerpts. It's a long video, but we're just going to play 90 seconds of it. Here's Tony Mitchell getting pulled over and busted with drugs and guns. Do you have a medical marijuana card? Because I smell marijuana coming from the vehicle. Okay. So do you have marijuana? Because I smell it. Now it's a chance to be honest with me, partner. I didn't run from you, sir, but Are you sure about that? Because there, there was two of us there when you passed that church. All right. Just do me a favor. Step out. That much marijuana is a felony in the state of Florida. Okay? It's possession of marijuana with intent to distribute. Y'all have almost a pound. Okay? So he's not taking it. I tried talking to him, so he's lieutenant, okay? Sir, hey, hey, sir, please. That's all I'm charging you. Sir. But I ain't got a choice on that. Sir. Uh, sir, please, please listen to me, sir. Please. Uh, like, dude, I understand. Trust me. I, I get it. No, no, this is the last thing I wanted to do, okay? No, sir. I can't, sir. Alright, well I understand hood. Just sit tight, let me talk to the lieutenant. Um just sit tight for me, okay? So that's Tony Mitchell. You can laugh. Uh I, I'm I'm just sad to see a young person uh jeopardize their future in that way. Uh guys Five-star recruit, defensive back, playing at Alabama. Bright future. Making, I'm sure, decent money through name, image, and likeness. Uh, but that's not enough. And so I thought someone that could really help us understand what's going on in the mind of uh, Tony Mitchell and why perhaps we should not give up on Tony Mitchell is uh, David Tyree. David, when, when you watch that video, I'm sure it brings back some nasty memories uh, for yourself. Uh, help us understand what's going on in Tony Mitchell's mind. It does bring back uh, some, some, some really faint memories. You know, I have, a, I have a saying that everywhere you go, there you are, right? And, and it doesn't matter whether you move from New Jersey to Alabama, you're still gonna be the same person with the same issues, with the same ideas about yourself and who you are. And obviously, Tony was in a privileged position and positioned himself well as an athlete, but everything he felt like he wasn't, he probably learned from something, whether it was social media, music, some false idea image that created some form of lack. And obviously, it led to some of the traditional, foolish, um, immoral, you know, attitudes and behaviors that I subsided to some of which, but... That's, that's it. They covet what they don't have. And because of whether it's the comparison game and your own idea of what it is to be successful, prominent, tough, arrogant, that's how you move and begin to shape that narrative. A lot of it obviously comes from being saturated with, uh, you know, hip hop culture and some of the, the idols of our, of, our, of our land today that um, sadly 
we, we seek to imitate. So, you know, I, I can remember well with my own failure on a, on a, on a, on a minor, on a different, different scale, but the same thing. I'm, I'm in the National Football League with every opportunity in front of me, but not having a real gauge on life. David, this is, I'm a former athlete from a long time ago, and, and I, I don't remember as an athlete in my day, I'm 56 years old, we didn't want to be rappers. And rap was yeah. popular when I was an athlete. Yep. But now it's like athletes want to be rappers far more to me than, than many of them want to be athletes. It's like we just melded our image into their image rather than keeping our own identity as athletes. You know, that, that's, that's very true. I, I think that um, there's there's two things. You got ath athletes who want to be rappers, and, rap and rappers want to be athletes. There there's this shared desire for everything that we're not in, within our culture, and some of it is because you genuinely can be, which is you know which isn't necessary. But you you know like you don't have to be a immoral rapper, but number one, you have to perfect and give yourself the opportunity to become something significant, and hopefully you, you don't lose your sense of value, identity, and what's meaningful in that. Right. Because if someone would have something to share meaningful, that wouldn't be an issue. The big problem that I've seen is the, the, the lawlessness that culture pervades. Right. The message. So when I when I consider maybe your generation versus my generation, we didn't have access to being athletes. We didn't have access excuse me, to being uh, entertainers. We didn't have access to these people. Well, everybody has access now and every opportunity is available for every single young person growing up. You can, you can do this from the moment that you're five years old, create a song. And, and, and I think it, it distorts reality in relation to what's meaningful, right? And I think that's where we're growing with these different evolutions. Nothing's wrong with, you know, we have to have a sober idea about what success is, but it's kind of like, you know, I look at it biblically. You know, God, God has something different for every single person. It was 12 tribes of Israel and, and everybody didn't have the same inheritance. And I think our biggest problem is thou shalt not cover your neighbor's possession. When I look at athletes and some of our missteps, it's always the comparison and the desire for what others have versus a lack of contentment and what we've earned or what's kind of appointed to us. And we're not exclusive in that, but we are the, the magnification of that diseased um, issue in the heart um, within our own culture. And Tony Mitchell was one of those. You know, he, he, he died on the sword of, of foolish decisions. Hopefully, hopefully he'll get a chance to redeem himself. So my speculation, I, you've confirmed somewhat, but I want you to elaborate. There are guys in the NFL that people on the outside are like, man, that guy's living the dream. He's playing a sport and he makes 800,000, 1.5 million a year, whatever. Oh my God. But that guy is actually in a locker room and looking <laughs> at Michael Strahan or Eli Manning and going, yep. man, I ain't done nothing. Is, <laughs> am I right? Is that the pressure that a lot of guys feel? And like, yeah. I, I got to make 20 million a year like Strahan as soon as possible. Well, it's true. And, and, and it, that's a part of it. I don't think it's I don't think it's even majority, but I, we, we know it's there. It's there. And everyone should have aspirations to, you know, this generation calls to get the bag. But at the end of the day, that 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 rookie year salary of five, five fifty, 
you know, you 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 begin to break down the lifestyle that you're going to maintain, even as a rookie in the NFL. Taxes, realistically, it's a great starter kit. It's a great, it's a unique opportunity, but it's not life-changing money. It's not life-changing money. It's a life-changing experience, and that's the sobriety that people like myself came to understand. After having a $225,000 rookie year, all those bad decisions, I had enough money left over after my little bit of lawyer fees, whatever kind of poor decisions, all that poor decisions cost me to make a down payment on a house. I had to borrow my my first month's mortgage uh, payment as a, as a second-year player in the NFL from, from my pastor at the time. And, you know, I had to pay, I had to borrow 5000 from Dwight Freeney, who was my, you know, college college uh, classmate, to pay a lawyer fee for the guy I got locked up with. Hey, man, that's that's how quick it can go with poor decision-making because you don't know money. You don't, there's so much that you don't know at 20 years old, 22 years old. And it doesn't excuse the opportunity or the behavior. So you got to be high on accountability. You got to be high on ownership. But at the end of the day, no one knows what they don't know. That's the need for redemption. But the reality is you had every opportunity to maximize this. You could have turned, you could have walked away from that rookie year with a hundred grand in the bank and found sound investments, found advisors. You have access to every individual who wants to know you and learn how you became a high performer. So there's two different opportunities. And if you focus on what you don't have versus what you have, then you're already losing by virtue of your mindset. The other thing people a lot of times argue like, well, the NFL don't tell these guys anything and they just exploit them, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> my experience is like the NFL is sending a conga line of people in to advise these athletes. Do this. Do that. This is don't make this mistake. Am I right? Yeah, there, there, there's tons of resources. There's every resource available. You know, the biggest challenge with was speaking to a young man at 20, between 20 and 22, every behavior that got him to this point is now justified because he has now reached the climax and pinnacle of the dream experience, not just as an athlete. So every behavior is now justified because it didn't cost him getting to the pinnacle of dream. So and I actually understand it. Like, I understand it. Why would they not? Why would you not? Why? It didn't cost me. I've been doing this the whole time and it didn't cost me anything. So why would I change now? You know, and, and this is the part where, you know, even policy, it, it, it preserves culture, but it doesn't change the heart. This is the narrative and the power of the gospel at the end of the day when it comes to an individual. But the individual has to own his own poor decisions and the consequences, again, that come along with it. And there's nothing like pain to be the profound teacher. There's nothing like loss that, that begins to cause us to reconsider our ways. And you just don't want to see it, but this is a part of the human experience and athletes are sadly given way more, way more credit um, than, than we probably really have earned. And, and that's that's part of the problem with our, with our culture. David, you're, you're knocking it out of the park. Not only do we say, hey, it hasn't cost me anything, I think a lot of times, and I can relate this to myself, not even as an athlete, but just as a journalist in my career, we start thinking that many of our faults are actually our strengths and are the reason we're having success. I knew guys, I'm not gonna call guys name, great <laughs> NFL career, fault that smoking weed every day, 
was one of the reasons he was a great NFL player. Yeah. And, and you couldn't argue him out of that. And, 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 and so our, our weaknesses, we actually interpret as, this is how I did it. I was high yep. the whole time. This weed is part of my superpower. And, 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 and I, you know, a lot of the stupid things I did in my personal life or whatever that have sure. actually hurt my career, I thought, well, I mean, you know, not being weighed down with a wife and kids, that's why I'm such a great journalist. That's why, you know, I'm having the success. And, it, it, you know, you got to get old enough and wise enough to know, like, no, nah, man, if I had actually partnered up, this would have all been better. And my <laughs> life would be in balance. And, and so that's what it's hard to tell a guy. And, 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 and I say it all the time, and you, you mailed this point, too. It's like, it's hard for me to say to some athletes now, because they all rejected us like, hey, man, a lot of this professional athlete deal is it's the genetics lottery. And, and I really say this as it relates to basketball. Like, oh, you think you worked hard to be six foot seven? You think there was some stretching <laughs> exercise you did that I didn't do to be six foot seven? And, and like, and, and oh, you ran a four two forty. You think that's because you ran more wind sprints than everybody else? Yeah. Some of that's just genetics. A, a lot you, of it. You got to have something to work with, you know. And, and I had a sober conversation with a with a young guy who was a year out of college, and he didn't get the opportunity he was looking for coming out. And I said, well, you know what? These guys are pretty good at scraping the walls to find talent. If they didn't, if they didn't find you yet, there wasn't enough done at the time. And you can go run a four four four. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of different factors that are going to give you the opportunity to enter into professional football. And I said, at the end of the day, why would you want to bang your head against the wall for a hundred for eighty thousand dollars at an inferior league when you can you can be making that kind of money right now sitting behind a computer? You can figure we, we can figure that out right now. I can guide you within a year. I bet you I can help you position yourself to make a, to make eighty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars. So. This sounds like more of an identity crisis than you felt like there's a missed opportunity in the NFL because there's a lot of things that have to go right for you to become a professional athlete. There's a lot of things that has to align really well for you. To, and once you're out the league, you know, good luck to getting back in. It's, 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 it's all those things because the competition is so thrilling. It's not to say that they're not working hard. It's just to say that genetically you have to have a lot to work with. Basketball a little more so. You know, it doesn't matter your 10,000-hour rule. If you're 5'6", and you have to be the, the most dynamic freak of nature, at, there's a lot that you have to make up for when you don't fit the typical um, size, speed, profile at any position. I, I try to, you know, people get offended by it, but, you know, it, it's like, and I'm not saying this to pick on this person because I halfway like this person to some degree. He says a lot of silly <laughs> stuff on TV, but to, to, like Kendrick Perkins, he wasn't, he's six foot 10. That's why he had the NBA career, not because he worked harder than everybody else, not because he was more skilled than everybody else. He's six foot 10. Dude, yeah. I, I think there's a stat that like maybe 19 or 20% of the men in America that are seven feet or taller have played in the NBA at some point. 
Mm. Seven footers, they just work harder than everybody else? (laughs) Or or it's like, that's such a rare gift that, you know, it gives you a a leg up. A big leg up. (laughs) Yeah, and and that's that's not to diminish, uh, you know, their accomplishments or anything, but I, I just wish people could recognize how blessed they are and and, yeah. and if people would would understand John Thompson uh, used to say following up on your point about the young football player you were talking to the next time you run into that situation tell them what John Thompson the great basketball coach used to tell his players there's far more money made sitting down than standing up <laughs> and so sitting behind a desk, <laughs> typing on a little computer, doing something, far more I'm money gets made in America on your rear end than standing up. And and you just got to put the time and effort in and have there the desire is. to figure out, I can make it in this world sitting down. Listen, I, I tell people all the time, I said, you'll never, you'll, you know, football and professional sports, you'll never make money easier, Right. And that's, that's the unique opportunity that presents itself. You will never make money easier while you're playing a game. At the end of the day, and it's, it's, it is, it's a dream job because you're living out the kid's dream and, it's, and there's a lot of money around it and you deserve what you get and respect. Um, but when you come outside of that ecosystem, you can make a whole lot more money when you understand how money works, what people want, and how to position yourself properly if you get that information, skills, and relationships. And so, you know, and I think that's what you have to mature and understand. But guess what? You'll never make money easier than sitting out there, playing that game, shooting that jump shot, running down on kickoff like a guy like me. Hey, man, I'm just running the 60, 70, 80, 60 yard sprint, going out there, throwing my body around. And does it come with a cost? Yes. But that's something I signed up for. And so, as long as you recognize the risk, understand what's going on, it's a unique opportunity across the board of professional sports. So I'm sure a million people have given Tony Mitchell a million pieces of advice, but there are a few people that have had your experience that could give him some advice. We'll end on that note. What would you say to Tony Mitchell if he happens to see this interview? What advice would you give him? Yeah, I'm going to tell Tony, you know, all's not lost. You know, you're next in line of, of young men who who made a myriad of bad decisions. So you didn't make a unique bad decision. It's just a decision that's going to cost you something. Bear the weight of it, own every bit of it, and beg for the opportunity to reposition yourself to play the game of football that you love. All the opportunities that he had yesterday, it might not be the same opportunity, but similar opportunity is still in play for this young man. And what he needs to what he needs to do is take ownership for the foolish, sinful, cri- you know, criminal behavior that, that that caused him to make headlines across the country, and commit to never doing that again. That's called repentance, and and then and then find the people in place that's really an advocate, and 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 get on board. He has unique gifts, talents, and skills that have the opportunity to to reposition himself and and still realize his dreams. That's exactly what I tell him to, and I tell him to put Christ at the seat in the center of that, because even if he if he attains those goals, he'll never have a new heart that's going to sustain the place that he can, the mountaintops that he can, he, that he can walk on through his gifts. David, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate the time. 
Uh, we'll see you next time. That's David Tyree. You guys remember him from the Helmet Catch. Great story, narrative, great worldview. Love having David on the show. All right, uh, we'll play some tomorrow, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.